Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 113. Just yesterday feels like we got to 100 and now already 113. It's crazy. Uh, well into the summery months here in Sydney and I know it's getting cold for everybody up there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just always so grateful, so excited that this show gets to happen every single week. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to our wonderful Lotox Club members, which of course you can always jump in every week. We mention it in the show notes if you want to check out what that's all about. Um, we've already done a couple of challenges, our little seven-day sprint challenges in there, and it's a beautiful little group that's growing all the time by a few people a week. So I invite you to come join the Lotox Club whenever you fancy uh, doing that. And of course, thanks to our show supporters. And this month, woo, we have a huge, uh, a huge giveaway plus offer for everybody. Thanks to Waters Co. Uh, Mineral Pot Water Filters. But I just want to mention first that today's guest is Dr. Jonathan Latham. Uh, we're going to be talking about understanding genetics, understanding genetically modified organisms, understanding Roundup, and the food movement as a whole. And uh, Jonathan and I uh, spoke at an event recently together when he was out here touring, and I was just blown away by his ability to share the bad news about some of the scarier aspects of the research he's involved in. He's an independent, self-funded scientist, um, so he really has the freedom to explore without limitation um, some of the potential hazardous effects of the way we're growing food today um, and uh, doesn't have to answer to anyone in particularly about the results, just publishes information. Uh, so it's a, it's a real joy to have him on the show and um, he is obviously a PhD, being a doctor. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource, Resource Project and the editor of the Independent Science News. Uh, he's also the director of the Poison Papers Project, which publicizes documents of the chemical industry and its regulators over time. So much of this stuff is regularly available, and yet we don't know it's there. So if you if you really like to have hard-hitting evidence, the Poison Papers is going to be something that you will adore um, as a fellow rabbit hole fan. Uh, and uh, he holds a master's degree in crop genetics, PhD in virology, and he was subsequently a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Genetics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, currently lives in the state of New York. And uh, he, is, um, he is quite a mind. I can't wait to share what we're going to talk about today. So that's coming in a little minute. But let me just get back to this month's sponsor, uh, Waters Co. Mineral Pot Water Filters. I have upgraded my water filters uh, over the years as I've been able to, and um, and uh, it, it's always so exciting when I feel like I finally get to the big ticket item that I really, really wanted all along because I knew it was the best one, uh, but it sometimes takes a couple of step hops to get there. And uh, in the case of um, the Waters Co. filters, for me in terms of all of the ones I've had a look at research in terms of the level of transparency and level of testing and research that is provided when you are shopping around for a water filter, they really are the best. And uh, there are some great other water filters, don't get me wrong, around there, and there are, there are many that do most of the job. Uh, but 
Waters Co. The the biopod that I have now is um is one that I've had my eye on for many many years. Uh, I started with their little Ace Bio jug, um, back in its old kind of large clumsy black looking iteration, but now it's a gorgeous little groovy white jug and it has become our travel jug as a family. The boys take it camping when they go camping. I take it on my business trips and it dramatically cuts the amount of glass bottle water I might need to buy if I get to a location and all the implications of the intensity of recycling around consuming one or two litres of water a day from glass bottles um, is something I've always been mindful of. So now taking the little Ace Bio jug is a brilliant thing to travel with and uh, and what I love about it as well is that it f- it filters really fast so you can um, pop a couple of glasses of water in there and you've got them two three minutes later fully filtered and by the way when I say filtered I mean 99.9% of microplastics lead copper aluminium other heavy metals fluoride chlorine chemicals including PFAS um, pesticides bacteria cysts and viruses so this is a very thorough water filter and it costs about $100 for the average household to maintain in terms of filtration costs. So it's about half the cost of the competitor filters in my experience, which means that even though you're paying more for a filter to begin with, uh, as you are in the case of the Waters Co filters, they are a bigger ticket item, um, uh, you are actually saving money down the line because of the filter refill costs um, being $100 a year and because of the fact that you've got a lifetime warranty. Now, I don't know any other water filters that offer a lifetime warranty in Australia, but these guys do. Uh, The other thing that I love about them, yes, it's awesome when you take everything out of the water that you want to take out of the water, but often things aren't going back into the water that our biochemistry expects, such as the 60-plus natural bio-organic sea-based trace minerals. Uh, Try saying that fast after a couple of gins. Um... Uh, that go back in naturally into the the whole um, system of filtration that the filters have. So if that sounds good to you, then we have 10% off the entire Waters Co. range and free shipping, which is huge, um, with the code POD, C-L-T-L-F-E-18. Uh, and we're giving away one Ace Bio jug and one Bio 500 filter. So um, the giveaway I'm going to do for the first two weeks of the month, so get your entry in today, head to the show notes, lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast, and just pop a little comment as to why you're really keen on winning either the jug or the Bio 500 benchtop water filter for your home. Um, And so that we find out who the winners are in week three, and then you still know whether you actually need to buy one if it sounds like something you want. And given that we are coming into the home stretch of the year, given a lot of families out there celebrate um, gift giving at this time of the year. I can't think of a better thing than for a whole family, instead of, you know, racking their brains, trying to figure out what to do for their hippie crackpot, low toxer in their family. And, you know, oh, is any gift going to be good enough? She's probably going to say it's not the right thing. All that kind of stuff they give us grief for when we're the one, the black sheep of the family who's into all this stuff still, um, you know, first. Uh, then to say, can everybody just give me 50 bucks um, or, or coordinate between yourselves and send them the links 
send them the discount code and say, this is the water filter I want, job done, Christmas present or whatever other gift uh, celebration you're having, it's done. It's sorted. If you've got a birthday, November, December, perfect. So do make the most of this amazing offer that Waters Co. have put together for us. It's a wonderful filter. The water literally tastes delicious. And um, and I'm so excited to recently have been able to upgrade to a filter that I've had my eye on for a very long time. So um, Without further ado, I'm going to kick into the chat that I have lined up for us today with the wonderful Dr. Jonathan Latham. Uh, Don't be alarmed, be informed. That's all I'm going to say about today. It's all about getting to the bottom of how things are looking so that we can actually more uh, proactively make better decisions uh, to support the kind of food system that we want for our kids and for the future of our beautiful planet. Enjoy. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? Hi there, Alex. It is very exciting to have you here with me. And uh, I mean, there is a lot we're about to talk about tonight. Uh, however, I would love to start for, um, for those not familiar with your work or your history and how you arrived to do the work you do today. I'd love to just hear a little bit about your childhood experience or studying or what you then went on to choose to study as you got into your teenage years and 20s and how you arrived to be such an incredible um, advocate of a sound and just food system uh, that you are today. Um, uh, Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting for us all to hear about how that's played out for you personally before we dig into some hard-hitting questions. Mm. Well, you know, there's for me, there's many elements to the journey that I've taken. And, you know, some of them are very personal and family oriented. You know, I had I have some of them. I have my mother to thank, you know, good and bad. Right. (laughs) So one the good, the good, for example, is that my mother is a fantastic, still is a fantastic cook. And, you know, she bred in me an interest in food such that, you know, I could not go to a McDonald's. I could not go to a, to a junk food restaurant. I couldn't eat food out of packets. I couldn't eat food out of cans because it was just, you know, kind of repulsive. Like she, she, would, she cooked for us every night. You know, she, she probably spent an hour and a half. We always had fresh vegetables. We always had, you know, some stew or something like that. And she taught herself to cook. So that was a huge thing. And do you Another think do you was, think McDonald's yeah. was repulsive because she verbally communicated that it was and what was in there, or was it just no, that you no. understood that tastes way better than that? Yeah, it okay. was merely it was a habit really for us. Yeah, she. I mean, she. I don't think there even were McDonald's, or if there were, we never. You know, we did actually go to this place one time called Wimpy. I don't know if anybody yeah. in yeah, Australia yeah. ever had Wimpy. And I think, I think those, we went the Brits once. among us would, would definitely know that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so, uh, so that was a burger bar, primitive burger bar, I suppose is what you'd call it. Yeah. And, and we did, you know, once or twice, I remember going there. But, you know, as I grew up, you know, the, going to that kind of place become, became really challenging. So, you know, that leaves you with a love of tasty food that, that is hard to overcome. Yeah. So then, but then the other thing, which is not quite so positive, is that my mother sometimes used to kind of like manipulate me 
and uh, and others i think in like by by telling little white lies and to try to get us to do something okay and and this like i think i attribute this to breeding in me like this total distaste of of untruth and and that because i could see that people would be manipulated by these and she did it and she did it in, <laughs> in really a crass way and and it was it was obvious to a nine-year-old oh, wow. that she was doing this you know and so so i mean if she'd been subtle and good at it you know you wouldn't notice right you would just do the thing and you would kind of maybe afterwards feel distaste or whatever but she was not very good at it as is what i would say yeah, yeah. but it bred in me this like <laughs> anathema towards people telling untruths and so so this you know the whole of my future life is kind of determined by these two things right first you have this enjoyment of you know what became the natural world what became gardening what became cooking and so forth but at the same time there's like total disgust for things that are not true and accurate and people people so 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 i become you know right now you know i really learned to appreciate the idea of not passing on information that is you don't not you, that you do not know to be true oh hallelujah right yeah, and so absolutely. like so so, but this becomes a really important. Like it means that you don't bring into yourself, your own brain, things that you know to be untrue, mm. or you learn to hold. Like somebody gives you a piece of information, and you think, well, that's an interesting piece of information. But before I decide to incorporate it into my system of thought, what I'll do is I will just put it in this kind of space where it kind of sits there as a as an un what's the right word, a kind of in a sort of neutral space where I've neither brought it in nor rejected it. You mm. just think of it. And so you just hold it there. And so I have developed this kind of mental habit of putting a lot of things that people tell me into this kind of neutral space. And then, you know, I try to identify, you know, our whole work is trying to identify things that are firstly ideas that are important and then testing them in all these different ways to see whether they 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 can be refuted or not and if and if you try hard to refute them and you decide that they work then you can run with them but mm. the whole the whole thing is predicated on a certain kind of freedom right that you work for an institution or an organization where that kind of thing is acceptable to do because many people don't you know they're expected to to peddle untruths to other people or to a shape a version of the truth to justify the work that one does yeah absolutely and to share all these ideas with each other that that essentially you know for example when you go to these political meetings or, or or you kind of hang out with people in politically sensitive positions they have you know it feels to me they have a culture that's full of litmus tests and these litmus tests are like, you know, you believe in a certain thing and not another thing. And you believe in and another. And, you know, there's a whole set of these litmus tests. And if everybody's expected to conform to those litmus tests, and if you don't, then you become an outcast from those groups and you no longer can participate in the career path and so on and so forth. So, so I'm very sensitive to these issues of truthfulness and whatever. And so, you know, now I've become you know, as much a journalist as a scientist and a writer as much as a scientist, these things become more and more important. And as your thinking kind of broadens, you know, the fact that 
I have this kind of, you know, develop this, these kinds of ways of understanding the world, you know, that it's big, you know, because I have a different, you know, I've ended up with a different perspective because I've had these, these kind of thought patterns, mm. you know, these systems of thinking about stuff. Isn't it really interesting uh, uh, what you're saying there is, is kind of showcasing what's uh, lacking in our culture, which is the fact that you've just demonstrated that you have abnormally, like as in uh, um, apart from most people, developed a strong uh, sense of critical thinking and critical independent thought process. And it just goes to show how our education system fails us if Mm -hmm. a few people come out the other end, um, as you have done, as I hope and feel I have done, um, thinking critically and independently and taking that piece of information going, oh, that's interesting and let me work it from this angle, this angle, see what that piece of you know science says and this person says and, oh, okay, actually I might take that to be true now that I've done all my research. Isn't that scary that that's not normal? It, it is scary. You know, and you hear about other cultures uh, where, you know, people are expected to explain how they know things and so forth, you know, mm. and those are cultures where, Truth has a chance of prevailing, mm. but in but in our in our culture, it almost has no chance of prevailing. Yeah, with um, my French roots, I'm French on my mum's side, and we're um, we're very big on a passionate debate when one arises at a dinner table. It doesn't mean you don't love your friends afterwards. It's it's just that we really enjoy debating things and and really testing each other's knowledge and how we came to form our beliefs around things. And I think that's really wonderful and often um I I remember at uni I had a lot of French friends and so we all did that and all really workshopped ideas and really challenged thinking and um but then if an Aussie friend would be with us they'd hear us which would have sounded to them like we were fighting because we were doing it in French um and like I remember you know a couple of times people saying are you and is everything okay between you and Leah? It's like, oh, we were just debating. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Culturally, how certain cultures seem to test um, test people's knowledge, as you said, like, okay, fine, if you believe that, great, but show me why and how. I think imagine if we actually all started to challenge each other on that. Well, you know, France has a you know has a whole had a whole series of famous philosophers mm. that have come out of that culture. And I, you know, I don't know enough about France to know why that happened, but it, it's definitely, you know, I follow French philosophers more closely than than almost any other nation, you know, Foucault and people like that, you know, really have had all these incredible things to say about our society, which, yeah. which British and American people rarely have, and mm. Australians, I'm not sure. Mm, no, I think Aussies take their cues from kind of mix of Britain and, and America, really. Um, okay, so let's let's actually get into some of these things that um, that you've studied so extensively. And I think one of the things in this whole uh, navigation, if you like, of uh, genetically modified foods that our world is experiencing at the moment, because it is a navigation, navigation slash slash massive science experiment. Um, 
Uh, and you know, something that just keeps coming up all the time is the whole feed the world thing. How are we going to feed the world? It's got to be GMOs. Otherwise we're not going to be able to do it. That's certainly what we see as mainstream messages in the media. I'd love to know how you came to, uh, decide that genetically modified foods perhaps were not the way to feed the world and what your views are in general on that, um, having, again, put an interesting piece of information out and thought, okay, I'll start workshopping this. Like, what did you go through to mm. arrive where you're at today on that? So, you know, the, early on when we published a scientific paper, the first ever one on GMOs, so this mm-hmm. is uh, Alison Wilson, my colleague, and, and myself, uh, we published this, we wrote, wrote a review paper and the editor of the journal asked us if we would write at the beginning that GMO crops would feed, were necessary to feed the world. And uh, we basically wrote back to the editor and we said no. <laughs> and, 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 and the reason we gave was that, you know, this is not our expertise. We are molecular biologists. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't know about the global food supply and agronomy and, you know, population trends and all this stuff. So we're not going to say that. Yeah. And, and they accepted it to their credit. But what's really interesting about that request is that you are kind of expected whenever you write a scientific paper. And the, the agribusiness does the same thing. For example, if you go to the job ads at an agribusiness website, or if you read an agribusiness press release on just about any subject, they will have, it starts with, there will in future be 9 billion people and we have to produce more food in order to, to make, the, make sure those people don't starve. So that every, as this myth is everywhere, mm. right? And, and especially among the very kind of knowing agribusiness set, you know, for whom public relations is there. Bread and butter, really. It kind they of sounds like a this. political leader um, sort of getting the general population to fear a bad guy that doesn't exist uh, yeah. just to get elected. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that, 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 that is essentially what is going on. Mm-hmm. So, so you have this bad guy, which is basically, you know, starvation. Starvation, yeah. And, and it positions, what's great about this narrative for agribusiness is that it positions themselves as the savior Mm -hmm. of humanity yeah okay this is very important basically a a presidential candidate to save the world from food starvation yeah Yeah. and they are this is it becomes a moral argument right it doesn't become a scientific discussion about crop yields and whatever they transforming their their um their status into a moral position right and they're basically saying if you buy organic food or if you buy local food or if you buy sustainable food the implication is that doesn't yield as much and that basically somebody's going to die as a consequence <laughs> right this is people people yeah. talk to me about this yeah and they say you know I, I it's it's not you know politicians for example policymakers will say well organic is nice but it's not going to feed the world therefore i can't support it as a policymaker uh-huh. right yeah. so this is an incredibly powerful argument yeah and and they deploy it at every opportunity. Like I said, in job ads, it's like the absolute default uh, pre- pre- kind of place that they take people to. Yeah. Right? That's why I say it's at the beginning of every press release. It's at the beginning of every job ad. It's at the, on every web page that they own virtually. It's there. Mm. And they start it at the beginning of every speech they make. 
they yeah. start with that point. Yeah. So this is like it's it's totally fundamental to their to their existence. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. Because because what you're what they're basically saying is you know we need to spray we need to use GMOs in order to to sustain the future population, and what they understand I think is that if the if this argument was not true that essentially what that means is that we're being sprayed and GMO'd and poisoned for no purpose except for their pu- private profits mm. so so the world would understand god that. forbid the world <laughs> would reveal that uh, exactly that fact. yeah but that is that is that is the the obverse if you like it's because, so, because oh if my... it's all just being done for money yeah right then it becomes unconscionable to do what they're doing but think about it like okay it just makes me think straight away of the last sort of 60 years of marketing to housewives about you know cleaning products that foam so that things are really really clean or mm-hmm. uh you know f- synthetic air fresheners full of endocrine disruptive chemicals so that your mm-hmm. home smells fresh or your toilet smells fresh or you know uh ad nauseum really on the amount mm-hmm. of examples that really are creating a problem that doesn't necessarily exist to mm-hmm. then be the savior that has the solution, whereas yeah. behind those curtains is actually just a quest for huge profits. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, this is the story of our whole society. Yeah, okay. you know, if 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 you want to go there. Yeah, well, it's a pretty right? depressing place to start, which means we, the only can... way is up. So that's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So you so you have huge numbers of these narratives that yeah. exist in our society, and that's. That's one of the purposes that we perceive our project as doing, actually, is kind of unearthing these narratives and exposing them. And so, so it turns out, for example, that this whole food, feeding the world myth is completely a myth, right? So, so on numerous grounds. So one, one of them, for example, is it's not really true that organic and local farming is actually less productive. Mm. But there's a story, there's an understanding. And maybe once it was, you know, 20 years ago, Mm. perhaps it was. Yeah, there's some amazing trials recently. There's incredible things that people are doing. You know, Mm. now they're freeing themselves away from the the agribusiness paradigm. You know, people are mixing crops and getting higher yields. They're, they're, They're using permaculture and getting higher yields. They're using innovative techniques of all different kinds of getting higher yields. So if yield is really what you care about, then you wouldn't actually do agribusiness. But that's not people's, most people's understanding yet. We're not there yet. So, but the second thing that turns out to be really interesting is if you push people who are, you know, claim to be data-based and scientific and rigorous in their thinking, and you say, how do you know this? What makes you think that this is true? Uh, you know, most people say I have no idea why it's true. They just repeat it, right, because they've heard it. But but there are a few people who will actually follow the thinking through, and they go back to these uh, basically food system models. There's a small number in the world of food system models that basically they measure, you know, what is the food output of China, or what is the food output of India, or what is the food output of Europe, and then. They add all those up and they look at trends and they look at biofuels and they look at changing consumption patterns and they look at population trends and they mix all these things together and they come out with these numbers. 
And the number they normally come out with is that we need to produce about 70% more food by 2050, right? And this, is a, this would be a big challenge if it was true, but it's not true, okay? Because what these models have all done is they have exaggerated demand in all different places in the models, and they have underestimated supply in all different parts of these models. And if you do that in a very complicated mathematical model, you only get one answer, which is the total, total exaggeration of the, you know, basically a total undershoot of the productivity compared with the future population and so forth. So, so what I'm saying here is that these models are rigged, right? And if you, if you look at the organizations that produce those models, you get an inkling of why they're rigged, right? Mm -hmm. They are the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, whose existence depends on there being some kind of farming crisis, right? Because yeah. otherwise, why, you know, why do we need to throw money? Why do we need to intervene in farming? Why do we need to do all this stuff if farmers can perfectly well produce enough food? And the only real problem with farming is the prices that farmers are offered, for example, or the cost of food to the consumer, right? They have to posit some kind of existential crisis in order to get their money from from the United Nations, from all these governments, from all these projects, mm. right? And it's the same with all the organizations pretty much that are producing these and certainly the original ones. So, so essentially they have a conflict of interest and they're rigging their models. And it's easy to rig models if you do this. No, nobody looks into them, right? It's very, very complicated mass. Complicated, you know, they... They produce books that are like 400 pages thick of what they did and how they did it and, and you know, what are the little mathematical algebraical formulas and so on and so forth and how they, how they collected data on Africa, which, like, no one knows how much food is produced in Africa, but they kind of, they're prepared to wing it, mm. right? And so, so they're do, making these models that are basically fraudulent. And so, so this is a huge, you know, what you ask, your first question is a huge deal, right? Mm. It's basically, it's their attempt to, to bamboozle the world into thinking that we need all these sprays, that we need all these GMOs, and we need to, to intervene in agriculture in the lives of these poor farmers and make them do something they're not doing already, right? But, you know, be applying moral blackmail to, to these farmers, you are, you are, you know, justifying all this extension work and, you know, a huge, you know, really a massive amount of intervention into these, into these food systems on the, behalf, on the part of all these governments. And, and this is being justified purely on the basis of a very small number of mathematical models who's the people who, and the people, by the way, who formulate these models they all talk to each other all the time, and they often move from one model to the other one, and so on and so forth. And, and the reason for that is because they dare not disagree with each other. Mm. Right? If they're all rigging it, part of the problem for them then becomes like, well, if I rig it and I come to a number that's completely different from you, then, then we're all going to lose credibility here. So they all, have, they all feel this pressure to agree with each other. So I've spoken to some of the people who make these models, and that's how it is. Psychology is so interesting, isn't it? It's kind of like someone buying a, a $5,000 appliance for their home and then selling it to all these other people and then like 
one might break or then someone needs a service or someone gets burnt or all these sorts of things sort of happen. But because they've all spent five grand, they almost feel a duty to say it's the best thing they've ever had because they don't <laughs> want to sound dumb. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these people would lose their jobs. If yeah. They well, you can draw a lot of parallels with everyday yeah. situations, you know, because yeah. it's really just this is just really a mass scale, huge example of little things that often a lot of us experience in our own social groups. Mentally. But they feel pretty yeah. confident that mm. no one will go back and challenge them on these things. Right. So we just had uh, Mark Linus out here um, in Australia giving a talk that unfortunately I was also giving a talk on that day so I couldn't make it uh, because I'm a big fan of um, looking at everybody challenging every side of an idea before forming my own, just as we were talking about at the beginning. And, uh, and so Mark, for people who don't know, he's a reformed anti-GMO activist. And back in his student days, he used to destroy GMO crop trials and, you know, be one of the loudest anti-GMO um, voices. But he has totally flipped, uh, changed his tune, so to speak. Uh, and uh, in a recantation speech, he apologized for having destroyed those crop tiles and su subsequently toured Africa and Asia um, to work with plant scientists using GMO technology to help smallholder farmers um, cope better with pest disease and drought. Can I ask how um, you respond to his work and what he has published? Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's first of all, mm. there's grounds for doubting his contribution to the GMO and the anti-GMO rather conversation that right. happened in Britain. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I was, I at the time was giving talks, you know, basically protesting GMOs and so on and so forth. And, and I had no contact with him whatsoever. And, and um, so, you know, it's clear that he was not a leader of that movement. Ah, interesting. He did play some kind of a part in it, mm -hmm. but he was not the person everybody looked up to or thought, you know, followed him and so on and so forth. So, but his, his subsequent, you know, conversion and book writings and whatever, these things are pure theater as far as I'm concerned. Okay. He, he has, you know, he's basically being, being funded by the biotech industry to do all this, to do these book tours. Like, like who, is, who is financing this tour of Australia? Who is financing him to be at the Sydney Opera House and to be at the Canberra National Press Club. Like, he appears in the biggest venues, most prestigious venues anybody mm. could possibly organize. I know. It's anything. interesting, isn't it? It's because fascinating. I'm funding my own book tour right now, giving free talks all over the country, and yeah. that's out of my own pocket because you got to sell a lot of books to cover it, right? And yeah. that doesn't um, happen yeah, in a yeah. small country like Australia. So it did make me wonder. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so yes, it seems like Mark Linus is on some kind of a gravy train <laughs> and his, his, um, you know, he he funded. For example, he he went to not funded. He went. He he got to give this huge speech at the uh, farmers conference in England a few years back, which was his, his official recantation speech. Mm, yeah. And like like, you know, how would how would you organize a stunt like that and get national media coverage and even international ah, media I coverage? I see where you're going with this. And yeah. And you really got to ask what on earth is behind this. Mm. And he's working with, he's, you know, he's now 
working with all these pro biotech people. They've really taken him into their bosom, and he 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 gets publicity on all these on all these websites and so forth. Like they have a hundred percent confidence in him, and 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 you so you, what you you know the sense is kind of a boy band, you know, a manufactured a manufactured persona in which he put he he tout every talking point of the agribusiness in his every uh, appearance and so so you know this is all you know this is all really really a suspicious set of uh, events interesting thank you for indulging me in in that because i think you know it can be very confusing when you say oh gosh if it's on at the opera house it's kind of like you know the mother-in-law who doesn't believe you about endocrine disruptive chemicals but then there's a documentary on the abc so she's all on board you know mm-hmm. it's the, it's like that sort of thing mm-hmm. and being able to give a talk at the sydney opera house is one of those things where you're like well that must carry a lot of weight to it if that person's allowed to get on that stage so yeah very interesting um one of the things that concerns me the most about um the current gmo model um that i arrived at my own oh gosh this is definitely not a good big picture um way to move forward was the Mm -hmm. ecological disruption and the soil depletion um, mm-hmm. Just in our own community, you just, you just so many people having issues with bones and low mineral counts and needing to take so many supplements. And, and it just seems crazy that we can't get our nutrition from our food anymore. And I really do believe in the research that I've done that soil depletion and ecological disruption um, has played a huge role in that. I was wondering whether you could share um, straight from the scientist's mouth what you know of, of that to be true and how, you know, what, what you've come across in the work you've done to demonstrate mm, that. Mm. I mean, th- this is a very complex issue. Yes, it is. I, yeah. I'm not able to give you like a definitive mm-hmm. answer to yeah. it. However, uh, you know, there are some really interesting and strong research indications about certain aspects of this. And one of them has to do with Roundup. So mm-hmm. the active, the Roundup is the brand name of glyphosate. And glyphosate is this compound that chelates minerals. That means that it, it binds to them, basically. Mm. And what it appears to be doing is doing that inside the soil causing dysfunctional soil metabolism, if you like. Yes. And there's all this research to show that, that you know, s- crops become depleted when farmers use too much Roundup. You know, if you use it year after year, then you essentially, it, it, it just binds to the minerals. And when they become, a, you know, the soil is cycling all the time. But every time a mineral, you know, a bacterium dies and its minerals are liberated and glyphosate binds to some of those. So these are divalent cations. They're things like uh, manganese and zinc. And and glyphosate binds to these substances and causes them to become not available anymore. And if the farmer keeps spraying them on, then you have developed this kind of dysfunctional soil, which it makes it hard for the plant to perform properly. You know, the plants depend on that life in the soil, although we don't normally acknowledge it. You know, mm-hmm. if you have a if you have a seedling and you grow it on completely sterile soil, it basically after a while will not grow anymore. Mm-hmm. It relies on this on the minerals that it has in the seed, and once those are those are gone, 
he basically can't ob- obtain anymore. And it's because of the biological functions, the fungi and bacteria and so forth that are in the soil. So, so you have all these, you know, you have all these signs of mineral deficiency that exist in the agricultural system. And I know of a few others too, but, but this is a vulnerability, right? This is something that, that can, can go wrong across many, many soils at many, many occasions and so on and so forth. But, but, you know, even though there's incredible diversity of microorganisms and of crops and of, uh, soil types and ecosystems they all have this commonality of depending on these minerals right Mm. you can't have life without these minerals you know plants and microbes and fungi of all you know they're essential nutrients well and to us as well to everything in nature really yeah that's right to everything in nature and so so this is a way that you can perfectly well theorize that a soil can become dysfunctional and fail to support plants and basically and ultimately fail to support uh, the end user, which often is the person. Mm. So, so this is, you know, this is probably the the most significant thing that I know that most people are not very aware of. Mm. It's certainly the thing that hit me in the face when I was, uh, you know, formulating my own views on this and uh, and. You know, I mean, people without minerals is one thing, but our plants without minerals means less plants, less functional agriculture in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you go down and you think, oh, wow, this is this is big. You know, it affects everybody up the chain from the insects running around through the fields to us, to the plants themselves, to the soil itself, to the carbon. You know, everything is affected. It's totally huge. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and so, you know, like, I mean, we've, we've obviously already started to kick into what we need to understand about the current GMO paradigm that isn't working for our health and our planet's health with that soil and mineral example. Do you have other examples that you really feel are very important that people understand and know about? There is, I mean, to do with, is your question about the minerals? No, I I guess that's sort of one. More about the GMO paradigm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. So so the GMO paradigm, you know, I had, I was staying with a friend in Brisbane who was my best buddy when we were doing PhDs together. Oh, wow. And he, he, so he's moved to New Zealand and then Australia. And, you know, but we... You know, we got on pretty uncomfortably, I have to say, and <laughs> and it just felt he was very defensive about all kinds of things, and he he wanted to accuse me of being, you know, some kind of blanket anti-science person who didn't like GMOs, and and he was unhappy, you know, listening to the nuances of what I think, but one of the nuances is that. I'm a scientist, and I oppose GMOs on all kinds of different scientific grounds. But in many cases, the, the grounds for each GMO is a little different because they are all they're intended to do different things, and they have different DNA in them. Mm. But the commonality of all these GMOs is that they all are patented. Yeah. Right? And they're patented. Basically, you can think about GMOs in a very, very simple way, which is that they are the effort of the chemical industry to control agriculture through intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And so basically when you 
own when you own the patent on a piece of DNA and you put that piece of DNA into the plant, you become a, in uh, you become effectively the owner of that seed, right? You can you can make the farmer uh, basically sign documents so that they won't share that seed, so they won't replant that seed. You can um, uh, you can test that seed, for example. Like it has a small piece of DNA, and it's very easy to do a little test to show that that is your intellectual property or that your pollen blew into someone else's field and so mm. on and so forth. So, so it enables, it legally enables companies to be the owner of these seeds, even though someone else is growing them and has paid for them and so on and so forth. They're still the owners. And what it also enables them to do is enforce that patent right with these little tasks that they can do to look for their piece of DNA. Because the old-style plant breeding, the patent wasn't as strong, and also it was very difficult to show that somebody was growing your apple and not someone else's apple. Mm. You know, experts could legitimately disagree as to whether somebody had taken your intellectual property. But with GMOs, there's no disagreement. It's like it's just a definitive test, and no one argues about them. It becomes black and white, which is perfect yeah. if you're trying to peddle yeah. a particular if business model. Yeah, if you're trying model. to defend, and mm. you know, Monsanto always deploys the best lawyers, and they always have the most money, and so on and so on. So there's no way for farmers to get out of this legal stranglehold, mm. and you know, it makes many of them very uncomfortable. But they're not even allowed to talk about it because they signed a legal agreement. So, so, uh, so this is, you know, arguably the single most fundamentally problematic part of GMOs is that it's given these chemical purveyors such a huge amount of control. You know, what's followed from it has been a consolidation to the seed industry because nobody pursuing traditional breeding can compete with that system. Mm. So, so, you know, from 25 years ago with hundreds or thousands, even if you can around the globe, seed companies, we now have hardly any seed companies except for a few specialist ones that, that, that cater to organic growers and so forth. All the rest of it is controlled by, by three or four agribusiness companies. And, and so the, you know, the global biodiversity and seeds has totally crashed in that time period. And these are all astounding tragedies, you know, individually tragedies and collectively a total disaster. Mm. And, um, and in terms of uh, Roundup itself, uh, obviously there was that big court case that uh, meant that Monsanto had to pay $289 million to the, uh, to the groundskeeper of the school who had sprayed Roundup and, um, and contracted cancer and was able to prove that it was caused by the use of Roundup. How do you feel about that as a scientist who has been trying to put up the big red flag about this stuff for a while now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is that an exciting thing for you? Do you feel like it's going to finally cause a domino effect of justice? How, what are your feelings with that news that's come out? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm encouraged, obviously. It's much better to win than to lose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I am aware that Monsanto is going to appeal this decision and, you know, they – presumably are doing that either because they're desperate or they think they have a good chance of winning. Mm. And they have a history of winning appeals as well. Oh. So, 
you know, there's, there was a famous case in, in um, West Virginia, which they lost. Mm-hmm. And they were ordered to pay $400 million. And this was in the 1980s. And it turned out the jury, what the jury did was award, because the jury was a little unconvinced that the, per, that the people had actually, their illness was really caused by Monsanto's product. But they were so appalled by Monsanto's behavior at the trial. What they did was they awarded all the money uh, against Monsanto as punitive damages. Ah, and so, gotcha. Yeah. So, so Monsanto basically went, appealed and said, well, obviously it's illogical to award pu- uh, punitive damages when it wasn't our fault for causing this illness. And then the, the appeal court basically said, oh, okay. And that was the end of their $400 million disaster. Oh, wow. And no doubt it cost them $25 million worth of lawyers, but mm. it was worth it, mm. right? So, so, you know, they really know how to work the legal system. They're kind of, you know, they're a company that, that is utterly ruthless. They, they have really figured out how to use the political system, the public relations system, and the legal system to their advantage. And everything is stacked in their favor anyways. But, but with their money and their, their influence and their ruthlessness in selling their products, they have, uh, you know, you put all those things together. I mean, I can t- tell you a story from the Poison Papers about how what Monsanto knew about the dangers of Agent Orange 10 years before the rest of the chemical industry. But they oh, never yeah. told anyone in the chemical industry. So what did they know? Well, they knew they knew that uh, that um, dioxins were incredibly harmful and it caused cancer to their workers, right? And they figured this out in the nineteen, the mid fifties. And this was their like factory workers, manu- like yes. dealing with it and bottling it. Yes, and, yeah, yes. So they published basically. You know, they were one of along with Dow were one of the major manufacturers of Agent Orange, right? Mm. And uh, when when the Vietnam vets all uh, basically took the manufacturers to court in the 1980s and 1990s. They, the basic disagreement was around the question of whether dioxins, so these were the contaminants of Agent Orange, whether those chemicals uh, actually were harmful to people or not. Because mm. there was no argument in the scientific literature. You know, they killed... Uh, Excuse me. They killed rats and they killed um, guinea pigs and they killed hamsters and they killed bunnies, these chemicals. But you can still, you know, if you want to be really perverse, argue that these things don't harm people. Mm. Right. And this is what the chemical companies do. Often scientists will dispel animal studies and say, but that's not human studies, so I'm not looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, I but, mean, this, yeah, we're this all is from nature double... at the end of the day, aren't we? Yes, I mean, this is a double standard. Yeah, it's something right? that confuses so, the common person and going, well, which scientists do we believe in? Exactly. Yeah. This is, you know, I mean, I mean, it's good to speak about this because, mm. you know, we run our regulatory system for toxic chemicals based, and it's essentially based on animal testing, mm. right? right? Mice and rats normally, but often other animals, dogs, and and so forth. So, so the chemicals, you know, quite often are tested under this system. And we use these animals on the basis that they are supposed to reflect human, you know, demonstrate human toxicity or reflect human toxicity, mirror back to us. 
the toxicity that we would experience if we were exposed in a similar way. So that is the premise of the, of the safety system. And the way I think about it is, you know, if this is your premise and you're going to use that as the basis for exposing people, you better believe that's true, right? Mm. Because if you're, you're going to be exposing all these people and, and if it's not true, and, it, it, and the bottom line is it's not true, right? So animals always give different results to each other, mm-hmm. almost invariably. So, so there is no basis really for saying that. But the chemical regulatory system assumes that it is true. So when, when you then later on come and you basically say, well, we didn't believe the, the we don't believe that, that these dioxin results, for example, are actually accurate and can be applied to humans, mm-hmm. uh, then you're basically using a double standard. You're basically saying that, well, it was, a, you're basically saying, you're admitting that it was a stupid thing to rely on these animal experiments in the first place, mm. right? So they've got all Whether they products, prove you know, safe or harmful. Yeah. 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 So, so the chemical industry is basically on the one hand saying, you should believe that 99% of our products are safe because of animal experiments. But this <laughs> one here, we've decided is not safe, is not unsafe based on animal experiments because animal experiments don't reflect human exposure and don't don't give the same results. So they're totally applying a double standard. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that double standard is th- this this totally bogus argument and is what's being used at this point by the chemical industry. They're basically saying this is in the n- late 1980s when all these Vietnam vets and people from from um, from Vietnam are suing and and basically trying to get recompense for you know horrible life-threatening conditions and and birth defects and deaths and so on and so forth, the chemical industry basically came up with this huge argument that basically, well, none of this science proves that there's any harm to humans. So when, uh, then, but there was three studies, three studies on humans. Mm -hmm. And those humans were workers exposed by Monsanto, uh, Monsanto plants when they had an accident. This is the one particular accident they had in uh, Nitro, West Virginia, of this plant where they're making Agent Orange. So, and those studies were used to basically show no harm to humans. And Monsanto used them basically to defeat, and doubt, to defeat the court cases of the vets and the people from Vietnam. And, but it turns out that those studies were fraudulent. <gasps> Okay, Monsanto just switched people from the control groups into the treatment groups and back and forth until they got the result they wanted. Oh wow! Okay, and so how were you able to? How were you able to find that? So, they, well, they admit it in the papers, <gasps> right? There's a letter, and it says, you know, our people got cancer, and we don't want this to happen all over again. And we wrote, and they wrote this in 1956. Right, like 15 years before the Vietnam War, oh my 10 years, 10 gosh. years before the Vietnam War. So, so basically, in 1964, the companies are ramping up production of the of Agent Orange, mm. and their workers are becoming sick. Right, Dow, Dow basically is is ramping up production, and then its workers are getting basically preliminary signs of dioxin poisoning. Mm. And they don't necessarily understand all the details of what's going on. 
So they write to the chemical industry in Germany. Because Germany is kind of like the home of chemistry. Like if you have a problem that you don't understand or it's an issue you can't solve, you go to the Germans because they know more about chemistry than anyone else. And so so they write to this German chemical company called Boehringer. Mm-hmm. And Boehringer says, uh, you know, we have had experience of these toxic chemicals. And in fact, they're so toxic that our we have forbidden our scientists even to research them. Oh, wow. Right? So this is how bad these toxins were perceived to be. Right? <sighs> so it turns out Boehringer knew this. And Dow knew it because Boehringer had told them. And this is uh, 20 years before they ever tried to argue that there was no evidence of harm of toxins towards humans. Wow. Right? So the whole chemical industry knew this, right? But Monsanto had already figured it out. So, so you know, the only small ethical thing that, that Dow did was they took, they basically, they wrote to the rest of the chemical industry. They started doing things like testing Monsanto products, mm-hmm. right, for these contaminants that they were in the process of identifying. And, and understanding were the cause of these illnesses. And so they tested Monsanto's products and there's letters saying, you know, this Monsanto product should not be sold and so on and so forth. And, and, but they wrote to Monsanto and they wrote to the rest of the chemical industry and they said, um, you know, you, we need to have a meeting about these chemicals because they're coming out of our product and your processes are producing them too. And they're going to go into the, into the, the food supply, and they're going to go into our products, and we're going to be selling them, and, and they're astoundingly hazardous things. So mm-hmm. all this is written in black and white. But the only company that knew this already was Monsanto, right? They'd known it for, for uh, at least 10 years. And wow. they write it in their, they write in their letters, like, uh, kind, of, kind of, you know, well, we knew this already sort of thing, you know, because mm-hmm. they basically, they're describing how their people, their workers got cancer, so they knew that it was harmful. Wow. So you mentioned the poison papers. It seems yeah. like a good time to actually uh, let people know what they are, what that means, your involvement in them, um, what does it mean to be a contributor to them? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, these are papers that originate from an incident that happened uh, in 1974. Mm-hmm. So there's a woman called Carol Van Strum, who's a homesteader in Oregon. Yeah. And she, she, uh, they live by in the woods, backwards. And one day this plane comes over and sprays her, her small holding mm-hmm. with this substance. Didn't mm-hmm. know what it is. And it later turns out it's Agent Orange. Oh, God. And so but her, her children 70s. become sick. Yeah, mid-70s. So her children become sick, and her, some of their animals die. Fish die in the river. You know, all this bad stuff happens. And, and she doesn't really think too, you know, because like a plane comes over and there's this fog, and then, you know, you're worried about your children or whatever. You don't do anything about it. Then, then uh, but it happened again. And she realized there was a connection, right, yeah. that this, this spraying must be the cause of, uh, of these these bad things yeah and they discovered then about uh birth defects among animals in the forest they, people in her valley were having miscarriages and so on and so forth and 
So she starts on this odyssey of trying to work out who knows, you know, first of all, what is this substance? And secondly, what is, um, what are its health hazards and what does everybody know about this? And so, uh, so she starts on freedom of information at request towards the EPA and the Bureau of Land Management and the people who are in charge of the spraying and so on and so forth. And eventually she accumulates this huge pile of documents and it ramifies into issues with PCBs, issues with dioxins, issues with other pesticides, so on and so forth, into all these different areas like pulp making and pollution in rivers. And, you know, it becomes like 20,000 documents that are sitting in her barn. And and she becomes instrumental in the band, by the way, of, of Agent Orange. Amazing. So, so, uh, so essentially, she has all this information and she writes for our website. So we have a website called Independent Science News. Mm-hmm. And she's writing for us. This is about four years ago. And she's making all these outrageous allegations about what EPA knows about the toxicity of various compounds in, in their history and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as I just explained, we're the kind of website where you can't just write stuff. You have to document it. Mm. And I said to Carol, you know, if you can't write this stuff unless you can show me the minutes and the files and everything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just, the internet is just full of scaremongering on both sides, really, isn't it? Without, yeah, without yeah, yeah. founded facts. Yeah. There's, there's way too much, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. And, well, it gives so, a bad name to the, the justice-making, um, evidence-based uh, reason for concern out there. Yeah, mm. yeah. But, I mean, there's no, you know, behind the average New York Times article, there's no more truth than any crummy website, in mm. my opinion. For the, you know, the stories that I'm familiar with, and I can give you plenty of examples of New York Times, Times articles that, that are full of it. So, anyways, so I didn't, you know, she just, she got tired of my questions, and she never wrote this last article. And, uh, but then, but I started to think about maybe we could get these documents off her. So I made some phone calls and find that, found out much more about who she was. And and so I asked people, you know, is, is she likely to have valuable documents? And people said, yeah, probably. And so, so, um, so we organized a small funding fundraising project to organize to have someone go up to her place and copy the documents. And she did, she helped in this project. And, uh, so we have this fellow called Peter von Stackelberg, who was a journalist who'd worked on some of the stories that Carol had been interested in at the time. And, um, and so eventually we got all these documents scanned. So it's like there's nearly three tons of paper that was scanned. And uh, and the next item of the story is going to be that they're going to be part of the library of the University of California in San Francisco. So I'm going to be there in a few in a month's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you will know, we'll do a little ceremony and I'll give a talk and, and we'll, de- we'll donate them to the library. But we put them online. Like what we did, what we've done so far, is put them online. We have a website called uh, www.poisonpapers.org. Mm-hmm. And that website, you go to that website and it's a gateway, basically to the media coverage of these papers and secondly to the papers themselves so that you can go in there and browse them. 
Mm. And browsing them you, requires a bit of patience and knowledge. You know, it's the kind of place where you, you sort of want to have some idea of what you're looking for because, you know, you're going to start – if you go to a random page, it will be – it's very hard to understand without the context. Mm. But, but, you know, many of the – much of the information in there is pretty astounding and, and the um, – I'm tempted to say beyond astounding – because because it totally implicates the regulators in collusion with the chemical industry that mm-hmm. they basically knew everything about these compounds just as the chemical industry knew everything necessary about these compounds so mm-hmm. i've given some talks on this tour for example about you know not only about how the the reg, what they knew about dioxins for example but a whole litany of stories about fraudulent chemical testing. Mm. So about well, this is so something about, we're uh, all really concerned with, and and why so many of us try and reduce toxic exposures wherever we can is because when yeah. you find out that the chemical companies get to come up with their own safety data sheets, and that those aren't necessarily, in fact, are hardly ever independently tested before going to market then that's a huge cause for concern based on the track record of things like agent orange pcvs ddt lead mm-hmm. mercury asbestos could go on yeah mm. yeah yeah. you could go on for a very long time mm. and and um and so so what you know what these papers add and is our primary interest is not so much the the appalling, shocking, I run out of adjectives, words for the uh, activities of the companies, but for the what the regulators knew. Like, the, you know, we all hold out this hope that the regulators somehow protect us from these companies. Mm. But really what the regulators are in fact doing is protecting the companies from you by basically pretending that they're there to guard your back when really they're doing no such thing. Mm. I think we've got uh, something like 80,000 chemicals in regular circulation and only Mm -hmm. 200 of them have been independently tested and only 10 of them have been banned by regulatory bodies such as the EPA. And I think that just speaks volumes for how we need to um, exercise healthy precaution, really, Mm -hmm. and keep our eyes wide open. Yeah, and many of those, many of those two hundred uh, tested chemicals are actually tested fraudulently. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I guess if the government body is doing it and they're pressured to perform in a certain way for the companies that pay for the politicians to vote certain ways on bills, I mean, you know, it can yeah. all, it can all get quite um, depressing, really, if you you go down that road. Um, but I, I definitely want to kind of start bringing it to um, solutions. And I'll put the Poison Papers details in the show notes because I think it's really important for those of us who are fact fact hungry and, and mm. really just want to see this stuff with our own eyes, then there's absolutely nothing better than heading to that website. You guys have done an amazing job of making all of that available. Um Something that I often have uh, people talk about in our um, in our private chat groups is, you know, someone might be part of a farming family, and that farming family might be using um, uh, might be farming genetically modified crops using BT toxin, for example, glyphosate in Roundup, 
um, being used routinely. Um, and, and often people feel at a loss as to how to start navigating away from the use of those things. And I don't expect you to give um, agricultural advice by any means. Um, but what might be some of the facts or, you know, I think you've covered a couple already um, that certainly would convince me if I was on the other camp um, until this point in time. But just to just to round that off and see if there's anything else, you know, if you had a farmer who was using Roundup routinely in front of you right now saying, give me the thing I need to know to convince me to try and find a way not to use this, what would you say to that person? Mm. I mean... I'm trying to think what's what's convinced me the best. Mm, exactly. You know? and, I think and, that's a great way to, to angle it. Yeah. I mean, there, there, it, for me, it's on so many levels because, you know, firstly, you've got animal tests. Uh, are basically, it's industry's way of, of trying to manufacture a kind of a fudge of the science. So, so... You know, I understood that animal experiments were not good science a long time ago. And we wrote a series of articles, actually, about the failings and uselessness of animal experiments that were well shared on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And I was happy about that. And um, so there's that angle to it. There's also the question of if um, if you imagine... Even a good regulator, you know, imagine we've established that, that EPA is fraudulent and has no, uh, no will to protect the public. Mm. Imagine that it actually, that was not true, that, that actually EPA had all the will in the world and it was full of people desperate to protect the public interest. Mm-hmm. Could they actually design a set of experiments to, that would protect you from using chemicals that were harmful Mm. and the answer to that question is no they could not because they have uh the the problem what they would face is the problem that uh you know the animal tests for example the animal tests that we use they are conditional on things like using the right strain of animals Right, mm-hmm. so animals of different genetic makeups give different results in these tests. Animals fed different diets give different results in these tests. Mm. Animals kept under different conditions, like of socialness or, or of temperature or of day length regimes, give different results in these tests. So, so the question is, which of, which of the results is accurate mm. for people? right? Shouldn't, maybe we should be giving uh, rats in these experiments, feeding them McDonald's and and, a, and a, the kind of diet that we eat, because that is the more realistic version of the test, mm. right? But that would give completely different results than the rat chow that they actually consume. So, and, you know, the rat chow, for example, I to take another example, the rat chow is contaminated with various levels of hundreds of different pesticides, and it all depends on the batch and so on and so forth as to what, uh, where, where, which chemicals will be in there. So each, rat, each group of rat chow gives a different result. Mm. So imagine, and also imagine further, 
that you need, you would, would like to establish safety, for example, for your immune system. Mm-hmm. You'd like to establish that these chemicals are not going to give you cancer. You'd like to establish that they're not going to affect your IQ and your brain function. You'd like to establish that they're not going to affect your reproductive function. You want to establish that they're not going to harm your kidneys and your liver and your pancreas or give you diabetes, right? How do you, how do, you do enough tests on these animals to satisfy yourself of all these different questions? And the answer is you can do it, but you're going to spend a vast amount of money. You're going to spend... Uh, you're going to expend the lives of, of probably 10,000 rats, right? You are going to uh, have leave a sort of legacy of testing of these chemicals of, you know, incredibly difficult and contradictory results at mm-hmm. the end of the day. And you're not going to understand how to interpret these results. So if you try to imagine what a good system would look like it becomes very difficult to imagine what it would look like. Even This is even if you believe in animal tests in the first place, mm. which you don't, but they're probably the best thing we have. So, so, so let's try to believe in that. So, so you end up with a scientific conundrum. And, and the answer is that you can't, you know, we do not have the scientific wherewithal to actually do what we claim to be able to do. And Which is prove same, something is safe yeah, or unsafe. Yeah, to prove something is safe, even just yeah. to a reasonable level of approximation, right? There's mm. no such thing as final proof in science anyway. Well, no but, one's going to put their hand up and say, yeah, I'll drink a quarter of a cup of Roundup every day and see what happens. No, they're not. <laughs> they're absolutely not. Yeah. And I wouldn't even agree to be microdosed with yeah, these yeah. things, yeah. right? And and you'd have to be pretty crazy to do that. Mm. And so, so the... The answer is that we can't do these experiments. Mm-hmm. You know, and notice I haven't even mentioned really anything about toxicological mixtures and so on and mm, so forth. Well, that's right? it. There's the whole synergistic um, Absolutely. Uh, consideration. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Because we're all exposed to hundreds of chemicals, you know, on a weekly basis. Yeah. So, so, so there's all these questions that need to be asked about mm. the system. Like, why are we doing this to ourselves and so on and so forth? And, and so, so no matter which way you think about it, we cannot do these experiments. You know, we don't have an honest regulator. We don't have a good theory of how to test, you know, because we use animals. And even if we did like that theory, it would be impossible to, in practice, carry it out. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of thing that I like to share with people. And the final nail in the coffin is, you know, for me, the poison papers and the dishonesty of the regulators. Mm. So we need to fundamentally rethink our environmental campaigning and our toxics campaigning. You know, we spend all this time as environmentalists campaigning to ban one chemical at a time, not realizing, for example, that banning one chemical kind of implies that the rest of the chemicals are safe, mm. right? Yes, you're sending the wrong message to people when you ban one chemical or ask to ban one chemical because you're basically you're, you're abetting the chemical industry in that in that statement. Yeah. Wow. Um, gosh, there's just so much in there. I'm just trying to think of how to 
uh, how to move on to another question. Um, so, so this farmer's still in front of you with with his um, uh, or her roundup in the in the shed, ready ready to get out there and, and go again. Um, you, you know, like they're saying, okay. Uh, I, I get that. So some of the testing or all of the testing, can we rely on it? Doesn't look like we can, but that doesn't fix my problem of this is how I've always farmed and I've got to farm differently. And because we don't know for sure, like why is that enough for me to stop using this stuff? What do you then mm. say to them now? I mean, to me, it's it's a question of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, many, many farmers, I've noticed, don't trust the government, right? But in my experience, they trust the government about one thing, and that's the safety of the pesticides that they use, which is probably the one thing they shouldn't trust the government about. Mm. So I would kind of be tempted to tackle them on a political level, too, at that point. Okay. If they fail to be persuaded by the scientific arguments that I put forth, enough that I'd probably rugby tackle them or something like that. <laughs> Good old schoolboy tactics, hey? <laughs> um, okay, so for me, then, the most compelling things that I have come to understand are how our soil is being depleted of vital nutrients, therefore our plants, therefore us. But mm-hmm. something that you've recently uncovered is damage um, in particular when we talk about genetically modified crops and the BT toxin in the genetically modified crops um, of uh, cell membrane health. Talk, mm-hmm. to, talk to me about that because I think that's yeah, pretty compelling. So, so, so um, it is. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm here in Australia and, you know, originally my original purpose was to come and talk at a conference which is about the mechanism of action of things called cryotoxins, which are basically in protein insecticides mm-hmm. that GMO companies put into their crops, mm. especially corn, but almost equally cotton, almost equally uh, a little less soybeans. Uh, and those those basically are, they come from um, bacteria. So there's a family of, uh, of bacteria that are gut pathogen. Mm-hmm. And it's called, the bacteria is called Bacillus thuringiensis. And sometimes these toxins are called BT toxins. Yeah. But we call them cry, you know, many people also call them cry toxins. And for the sake of sticking to one name, we call them cry toxins too. And cry stands for crystal. Mm-hmm. And the bacterium produces them as crystals. And these are, these are substances that, organic farmers use. So organic farmers uh, use these bacteria basically fermented in vats to, um, uh, to spray on cabbages against whitefly caterpillars and things, not whitefly caterpillars, um, uh, the white butterflies, I'm blanking on the name, but anyway, cabbage white butterflies is what we call them in England. Mm-hmm. So these are, these are uh, basically active, mainly against caterpillars. So basically, you can buy this substance called called Bacillus or BT or whatever. You know, it comes under various names. Dipal is one of the marketing names, and uh, and it's basically a fermented and spun down product of bacterial growth, and it uh, is used by organic farmers. It's used in conventional farming. It's used in forestry. What the GMO companies have done 
is they've taken it and they put it inside their crops. So their gene encodes the protein mm -hmm. that makes these proteins. And the argument of the regulators, of the uh, Fazans, who are your regulators yeah. here, of the EPA and the European Food Safety Authority, is that these proteins, and also this is Monsanto's argument, these pro which should be a red flag, mm. by the way, to, they, is that these proteins are basically identical to each other. The ones that are used by organic farmers that have a history of safe use and that, that uh, you know, relatively few people have a problem with the use of these, um, these proteins. Mm -hmm. uh, the GMO companies put them inside their plants and claim that they're the same, but they're not the same. Uh, for example, they're not crystals anymore when they're inside the plant. They're actually soluble proteins. And the way these So the protein work, itself has changed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the DNA, sometimes even the DNA sequence is the same. Mm -hmm. uh, but even when the DNA sequence is the same, they're no longer crystals. And what's interesting about these toxins is that basically they make holes in cell membranes. That is their mode of action. Mm-hmm. And different members, there are a whole different lot of family members. And these family members, some of them are active against mosquitoes. Some of them are active against beetles. Some of them are active against um, uh, slugs and snails. Some of them are active against nematodes. So there's a very wide range of the natural world which, against which some of them are active. Mm. But, uh, but they, so there's this kind of conundrum in the world of toxicology. Like, which is like, how come these proteins are very specifically active against certain species at certain times, mm. and yet ones that are very closely related are active against a whole different range of species? And the companies use this as their selling point. They basically say these proteins are very specific in their activity. They won't harm you. They won't harm non-target organisms. They won't harm all kinds of things. They just kill the pests that we chose them to be active against. Mm. The problem with that argument is they've changed these proteins, mm -hmm. right? So the next thing you need to know about these proteins is think about um, think about uh, a nuclear bomb, right? A nuclear bomb is something that would kill you if you if it went off at the wrong time. Mm. So what you do is you build all these safeguards into your nuclear bombs, right? Like you put a box around it and you put a special passcode around it. And you set a timer so it won't go off when you don't want it. And you have all these arming devices and so forth. Well, that's how these crystals are. Mm -hmm. The crystal structure itself is not a toxin. It is like the arming device. It's like the protection that the bacterium has that it won't kill it. So, so, but if you remove, what the biotech industry does is remove all these little safeguards. So once you've, they've made their product, few, if any, of these safeguards are actually left on the product and because it makes holes in membranes of, of all basically anything it makes holes in any membrane you can take a purified membrane and you can mix it with these purified toxins and it will make holes in them wow right? so it's the biological equivalent of a nuclear weapon wow right but they have taken it they have taken it and they've put it into their crops and they said oh well it'll be just the same as the, the ones that the organic farmers will, uh, are using, mm -hmm. okay? But that all depends on what they did to that toxin. Apart from they've made it into a soluble version, it turns out they've introduced all these alterations to most of them. 
They may detain some amino acids. They have made these kind of hybrid proteins. Some of them, they've lopped bits off to make them smaller. And the bits that are lopped off, right, are the safety triggers. And, and so they've altered these toxins. But then they go back to the regulators and say, oh, there's hardly any difference between what we're using and what these organic farmers are using. So therefore, it must be safe. And the regulators seem to sort of scrape and bow and accept these arguments. Mm-hmm. And, but what we pointed out is, you know, is the fact of removing all these safety triggers, right, which academics seem not to be paying too much attention to. And it's partly because the field of the, the mode of action of these toxins is very much infiltrated by the companies, mm-hmm. right? They're very, they're on the tail of everybody who says anything that's very slightly uh, uh, disagrees with their thesis about how these toxins work. And so, so I went to this conference, which was on the Gold Coast last week, and I gave our presentation and I'm giving it to a room full of Monsanto and Dow mm. people and academics or whatever. Tough and basically crowd. Telling them, basically <laughs> telling them that the companies are lying to the regulators about their products. Because they have a, we found a patent, for example, this is a classic. We found a patent in which Monsanto is telling, for the exact same product, Monsanto is telling the regulator that this is indistinguishable from the naturally occurring protein, but it's telling the patent office that their product is a super toxin, right? And they're saying it's active against many more species and is more, you know, is more active and is also active against many more species because we've made these changes. So they're telling one story to the regulators and a completely different one to the patent office. But the key thing for us was calling it a super toxin because this is exactly what we would have predicted. Like, you're making all these changes to make it more dangerous, right? Yeah. That's the whole yeah, yeah. point of them, to make your product more active. So everything makes perfect sense, except seemingly to the academics and the regulators. The academics and the regulators don't want to hear this story. They want to have their, they have their nice little narrative about how the protein is just the same and how the end thing's going to happen. And they're comfortable with that narrative mm. because departing from it. Would, would basically mean you have to ban all these chemicals. So these products, so, so we, you know, we, it didn't go down well in my talk. <laughs> like a lead balloon, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one wanted to talk to you at the recess. No. <laughs> you just munching they, away on your carrot yeah. cake all alone. Well, the only, <laughs> the only person who came up to me afterwards is this guy from Dow. Oh, wow. Right? And? and? And he said, he said his argument was, you know, we are all nice people here, and we would never make a product that, that would harm anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, of course, the last presentation I was making was about the poison papers mm. and about how they'd lie to, to millions of people and, and uh, cause millions of Vietnam vets to have hideous life-threatening injuries and so on and so forth. Oh and so goodness. I told him that. I said, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, and, you know, so like in your best scientific opinion with the knowledge that you have on this membrane, cell membrane damage, yeah. if we're eating, say, um, you know, some corn chips from GMO corn yeah. and, uh, and the BT toxin was used in the process of, um, of growing that corn, yeah. um, what can we expect to happen to human 
cell membranes because, I mean, can we make a plausible link between all the leaky gut that's happening in, um, it just seems like every man and his dog has a leaky gut these days. Yeah. Um, it seems like every man and his dog needs to take 10 supplements a day just to try and keep replenishing nutrients. Um, yeah. and, and as far as um, doing live blood analyses where you see cells and cell health, cells look leaky. You know, they look like they can't hold on to nutrition in a lot of cases. Yeah. Is there a link, do you believe? You know, I mean, it's impossible really to know for sure. Mm. But, you know, I was with, uh, just a couple of days ago, I was with uh, Judy Carmen, mm-hmm. the Aussie, Aussie scientist, yeah. who has done research into, you know, she's fed some of these crops to pigs and to rats, and they develop gut problems, mm. right? And that are that are basically consistent with them being attacked by these toxins. Yeah, and that's probably the best I can tell you. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have the rise of these illnesses that have this occurred more or less at the same time as the introduction of these crops, and and we have uh, her results, for example, and we have the total failure of the industry. To, to basically test its products. You know, some of these products uh, are really, they're basically pretty much untested, except by, you know, a few genuine people like, like Judy Carmen. And so, you know, basically all, all GMO testing is done by companies or the people they approve mm. because of this whole business of signing patents and so on and so forth. It means that, if you if Monsanto, Monsanto doesn't like your attitude or your scientific results, you will not get to work on their products. Wow! Right. So yeah. they control access to experimentation on their products. So so that makes life very difficult. But also, you've got to ask why they would bother to do that, mm. right? If they had confidence in their product, they would allow people to go and use it. Mm-hmm. But they do not. And so, so, you know, there's all these, you know, they're more than straws in the wind, right? They are, mm. they are um, significant data points. Yeah. But, but, you know, putting it all together, when you can't actually do animal experiments, mm-hmm. on, you know, you can't yeah. actually do experiments on people, you don't wish to do experiments on people, means that it is impossible for me to give you the answer I'd like to give, you know, the clear mm. data-driven answer. But I will say that if you if you decide as a society that you're going to use animal experiments, for example, as your guide, right, to mm-hmm. the safety of things, then you need to be, you need to, to basically go with that hypothesis. And Judy Carmen's results tell you you shouldn't eat these products, mm. right? And the experimental findings with these toxins, that they are more active and so on and so forth, and that they can make holes in guts even without, even, you know, holes in membranes, even without the presence of any other products, mm-hmm. means that you are endangered by these products, mm-hmm. right? And if you want to believe science, then you shouldn't eat these things. Mm. 
So you believe that right now the science is saying red flag, do not proceed. There's a massive question mark against these products. Yeah. 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 That's the best we can do right now. We can't give a data-driven black and white. It's the best we're likely to be able to do. Mm -hmm. But you have all the information you need to avoid these products. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like neonicotinoids, you know. We, we do all these experiments on bees, and they always show that they're harmed by neonicotinoids. But then, but then the companies say, well, this probably doesn't happen in the real world. But mm. the whole point of scientific experiments is it's not the real world. You have to make some assumptions and judgments and, and restrictions on your conditions. Yeah. But if you see, if you do 25 experiments and they all show harm on bees, then you stop using the products, mm. especially when the bees are disappearing. Mm. Yeah. There's no reason really to go any further. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how it is with these GMOs. Yeah, I believe so too. And if you speak to um, many of the doctors uh, at the forefront of working with some of the toughest health challenges that our children are facing today, I think of the Mind Foundation and the work they do to unite functional practitioners around the globe to try and address some of the escalating uh, issues around ADHD, autism, um, Mm -hmm. leaky gut and all the things that that's caused by, uh, it stands to reason that we would look at all the other things that have exponentially increased in the last 50 years and play matchy-matchies a little bit and see in our own practices um, what helping patients transition to organic food might do for their health. And lo and behold, it very often completely changes the health picture. So um, I don't think that's rocket science to then make an assumption that, that moving to a more natural way of uh, of eating and farming is um, is good good practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you're hopeful about? Is there something you know you go around and you talk and you must meet so many incredible people? Um, what are you most hopeful about in all of this? Mm. I mean, the, the thing, you know, I'm very excited about the food movement mm. at the moment. You know, I talk, when I give my talks, I, I begin describing food and agricultural systems as the nexus of our ecological and social crisis. Mm. You know, you think about all the impacts of food on rainforests and on human health and on coral reefs and on the water supply right these are these are all you know we have all of these are at crisis point but the drivers of those crises are agricultural practices and food foodways and so on and so forth that are basically destructive mm-hmm. you know you do industrialize agriculture and you destroy the soil and it washes into the rivers and it destroys the reef and it pollutes you know everything in its path basically so the and part where you're really optimistic is <laughs> well is that they all have one solution yeah right which is sustainable local ecologically sound agricultural practices mm. that if you do those you solve you know water so issues climate issues. issues yeah right you solve everything pretty yeah. much mm. so i tell people if you want to solve these problems you need to do it through the food supply and if through reforming the food supply, and if you don't set about reforming the food supply, you have no hope of success. You will never save the rainforest unless you address the, the 
impacts of the food system. You'll never fix the climate unless you solve the impacts of the food system and so on and so forth. Mm. So the food movement is people who are realizing these connections. Yeah. And, and so this food movement is becoming a huge social force and is, is putting connecting the dots for um, um, the, the scientists and many other people veil or refuse to connect. And so they're solving their own health problems and, and benefiting everyone else through their food choices. Mm. And it really kind of always then comes back to this beautiful, positive, empowering final realization when we all have these tough conversations and, you know, explore some really dark stuff that's happened in the history and is still happening in terms of um, the system that is currently in play is that our plate is ours to fill every single day and we get to decide how we fill it. Yeah. And therein lies the power of the common man and woman. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And that's the major economic decision that you make every day. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was a big conversation, Jonathan, and I thank you for taking the time out of your ridiculously busy speaking schedule while you're out in this part of the world. And, uh, and I know it will be a really inspiring one um, to, to those who grapple with this, who try and have conversations with loved ones, um, partners who farm. You know, there are a lot of difficult conversations happening because the science can't be black and white, can't give us a absolute yes, absolute no. And therefore, everyone is just forced to kind of sort of take a side as if opinion was enough. And, uh, and I think it's a really wonderful thing to, to take the time to dive deeper into this, this subject. And, and I thank you for doing that as someone who's on the forefront of the research. So, yeah, thank you so much once again for joining me. So, well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.